Well, we are getting back to the book of Galatians today after a break of a couple of weeks. We're going to be looking today in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you're also going to find that printed for you in the bulletin. I don't know about you, but but I find that at different points in my life, there are things I kind of like to to step back and look at and say, you know, there's an area where I I could be doing a little bit better. Uh, and, and we all have those things from time to time. We look at something and say, you know what, that, I, I need to work on that. I need to work on time management or some aspect of my profession that I need to be more proficient at. I need to, I need to get better. That I need to, I need to lose some weight. Um, I need to train my children to be better at, at, at whatever it is. Uh, we got a we got an invitation in the mail last week uh, for Will from an organization that, that teaches manners and etiquette, and some of you may be familiar with this. And, and we, were, we were sitting around, and I was kind of joking about it because I'm a big redneck at heart and just, just have no etiquette. But as we're, we're kind of joking around about that, I, I looked at all the kids, and every one of them had their elbows on the table. And I went, oh, my parents would be horrified. Or maybe, maybe a little etiquette. Uh, is a good thing after all. That's something we can work on. Now, all those are examples of self-improvement, and that's all right um, to an extent. But here's the thing. Uh, We can also have a self-improvement mentality about religion. You know, I need to work on uh, my, my body. I need to work on my soul. I need to work on my spirit. I need to work on my religion. And so... You know, we do something like we resolve to go to church more, read our Bibles more, or pray more. And that's okay, depending on how you look at that and how you're getting at that. But there's a, there's a danger looking, lurking uh, very near to that. There's a danger nearby. And the danger is, is that I begin to view my religious effort as something that makes God like me more. I begin to view my religious effort as me making me a better person, that I've improved myself. In fact, it's possible to be involved in a church for years, and you sit under the preaching of the Word, and your takeaway is, I'm more moral, I'm a better person, because I've been involved in these religious activities. And that's the extent of it. That's what you walk away with Sunday after Sunday is, well, that made me feel better, and, and I'm, I'm doing okay, I'm doing better, and, and God is pleased with me because of that. And you can sleepwalk, sleepwalk like that for years. Well, this is, this is good, I like this, this is, this is the way I improve myself. It's like going to the gym, I go to church, okay, I'm, I'm a better person. Well, here's what happens. Uh, eventually, if you're paying attention... Eventually, in the middle of all your religious self-improvement, you're going to come across a rule in the Bible that you don't like very much. It may be something like, honor the governing authorities, or or pay your taxes, especially this week. There's something that that we don't like very much that rubs us the wrong way. Eugene Peterson gives an example of this. He says, in their church parking lot, to, to help the traffic flow, they've got an entrance and an exit and very large arrows painted that say, go this way when you're entering and exiting uh, the church parking lot. 
And he says he notices from time to time people will ignore that, as we all tend to ignore those things at times. But he said there was one person who always went out the entrance and in the exit. They would not follow those arrows for anything. And finally, he just had to ask him about it. It's like, why do you never follow the arrows? And, and the lady that he was talking to said this. He said, I'm not being careless. It's actually, it's actually deliberate. Uh, she says, nobody by painting a mark on the asphalt is going to get to decide which of the two lanes I'm going to get to use to get to the place where I worship my God. <laughs> now, I guess he, I don't think she used that rule out on the highway, um, but she was using that rule in the church parking lot. And, and then she says, besides, it makes me feel good to assert my personal free will against an impersonal regulation. I can, I can, dis- you don't know, I, I can do what I want to do and I'm going to show you. Okay, religion can be one of those self-improvement areas until we come up against a rule that we don't like and we bow up against it. Like, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that one. When that happens and that's going to happen, you need to pay attention to that because that's telling you something about yourself. Don't just sweep that under the rug and say, okay, okay, I'm not going to do that one. I'm just going to the next one. Pay attention to the fact that you bow up against that rule. It's saying something about you. Uh, The second thing that happens over time uh, is, again, if you're paying attention to what the Bible's saying, you're going to start realizing that you're actually not that good at keeping all the rules. In fact, very likely there are particular areas of your life where you're doing a horrible job at keeping the rules. Don't sweep that under the rug. Don't hide that and say, well, no, everything's okay. Pay attention to that. Because it's telling you something about yourself. In fact, it's telling you something about how you actually can know God and have a relationship with him. Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, we're dealing with this passage today that's actually a very difficult passage. Uh, But in it, Paul's dealing with a group of people who are at the end of the day, they're engaging in a program of religious self-improvement. And they've missed what the law of God is actually intended to show them about themselves. So, all that lead in, here we go, Galatians 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we're delving into a difficult text today, so I pray that you would help us to pay attention to it, uh, help me to explain it clearly, uh, and Father, would you apply it to our lives and, and cause us to see uh, the meaning of it for us and what we are to believe and how we are to live. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I told you it was a difficult passage. Um, let, me, let me do a quick review We've been out of Galatians for a couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul planted churches in Galatia, and he proclaimed the gospel there, uh, that you're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Teachers came in after Paul, and they said, no, you're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, plus being circumcised, plus keeping the Old Testament dietary rules, plus basically doing all of the, the Mosaic law. And so Paul is writing this uh, letter to the Galatians uh, to correct this false teaching and to, to, to warn uh, the people in those churches away from this teaching uh, that says it's faith in Jesus plus something else. And so what he does in the book of Galatians is he's hammering home the fact that justification is by faith in Jesus plus nothing. Faith in Jesus plus nothing. Uh, In chapter 3, he's reminded the Galatians, look, you received the Holy Spirit, not by working for it, but through faith in Jesus. Abraham was made right right with God through faith, not by works. Uh, In fact, he said that if you rely on your own law keeping, you're not blessed by that, you're under a curse because you don't keep it. And the only way to be delivered from that curse is through faith in Jesus who became a curse for us. All right, now, that's kind of where we've been. That brings us up to verse 15. Now listen to verse 15 again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul said, let me give you an example, is what he's doing here. Now, an example of what? Well, an example of... Everything he's been saying, that faith uh, trumps works. He wants them to see, as verse 18 will say, the inheritance comes by believing a promise, not by keeping the law. Uh, The inheritance comes by believing a promise, not by keeping the law. Faith is foundational to law. It's not the other way around. Faith has the priority. That's what he's trying to get them to see. So, back to to his example. Uh, Even with... A man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, we read that and say, well, obviously, Paul didn't know any good lawyers. 
um, because there's nothing that you can't change or ratify. And, and there's a lot of speculation about, well, what type of covenant exactly was he talking about? And it could have been that he was talking about a, a Greek covenant wherein uh, once you made your last will and testament, you wrote it for the first time, that was it. There was no, oh, I changed my mind, I don't like you so much anymore. Uh, you, you didn't write anybody out. All right, that, it, it was done, it was settled, it was finished. Uh, whatever the case was, we know that there are certain situations in which it's done, all right? The, the, the contract is binding. You can't change it anymore. Once you buy, buy the house, you've bought the house. Once, you've, uh, once your last will and testament has been executed, you've died and it's been executed, that's done. You can't undo that. Uh, those of you who uh, watch Downton Abbey, um, you know that what drives that whole plot uh, is that uh, there's this estate that the Earl of Grantham has. Uh, and he has no male heir. He has all daughters. And the intel says that the inheritance and the estate, and all the money, even the money that his rich American wife has brought into the estate, has got to go to a male heir. So they've got to find somebody. It can't go to any of his daughters. It can't go to his wife. And so they're going to lose everything. And there's nothing they can do to change that. At least that's the way it was in season one. So don't tell me if something changed in season two to mess up my illustration. Um, so, so you couldn't change it. You couldn't, you couldn't add to it. It's a human covenant that you, that you can't uh, annul. And so the argument Paul's making is, if there is the, are there these human covenants that you can't change or annul or add to, how much more, if God makes a covenant, is he not going to change that? It can't be changed. It can't be added to. Even the, even the giving of the law by Moses, to Moses, by Moses, doesn't change the nature of the covenant God made with Abraham. All right, well, what's the nature of the covenant God made with Abraham? What did God promise Abraham that can't be set aside or changed by the giving of the law? Well, if you go back and you read in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, 15, 17, it goes something like this. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will give your descendants this land, and in your seed... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, Paul understood that the first thing this promise referred to was the receiving of the land of Canaan by Abraham's descendants. Uh, He understood that God was going to give Abraham physical descendants. He wasn't ignorant of the Old Testament. Uh, But he also knew that there was more going on in this promise than just somebody getting land in the Middle East. Right? Because God had said that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And that wasn't going to happen by a bunch of dudes hanging out in Palestine. Okay? There was not going to be this worldwide blessing simply by people inheriting a piece of land. And so Paul understands that both the land and the seed the offspring, ultimately have a spiritual significance. Uh, God wasn't just giving away land. God was giving away a spiritual inheritance. He was giving salvation to all who would believe in Christ and are connected to him by faith. Now, look at verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings 
referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul understood that offspring, that seed, is a collective noun, all right, and that it can refer to more than one person. He knows that because he uses it that way in verse 29. Look at verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, he's talking to more than one person, heirs according to the promise. Uh, Paul knows how you can use that word. He knows that Abraham's offspring are going to be more numerous, or as numerous as the stars in the sky. But he wants to emphasize the priority that the promise points us to one specific offspring. That the reason the many are going to be blessed, the many that there's going to be worldwide blessing, is because of this one offspring of Abraham who's coming, who is Jesus. Again, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Uh, One guy put it this way. He said, Christ himself is the true heir of the promise and the guarantor that the promise will be fulfilled. It is in Jesus Christ, Israel's promised Messiah, who extends the promise to his own seed, those who trust in him and are baptized into his name. Now, I know that's all kind of thick weeds, but do you, do, you hear the, do you hear the argument Paul's making? God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham received the promise by faith. He didn't do anything to get what he has promised. He didn't have to go cut down 5,000 trees or or sell 150 donkeys to get the promise. He simply believed God. God made a promise to him. This is what I'm going to do. And Paul says the law, which comes 430 years later, doesn't change that. It doesn't annul that. It doesn't take away this more foundational promise that God has made and that Abraham received by faith. Now... How to apply this. You're offered a part of that inheritance as well now. And God isn't asking you to do anything to receive it. But the message to you, the message to us, is to look to the offspring. To look to Jesus Christ. To look at him crucified and believe that he's been cursed, that he is accursed for you in your place. And you say, me? Me? Really me? Yeah, you. Uh, with all of your sin and your baggage. Uh, with all the things that nobody knows about. With all the things that you wish you hadn't done. <clears throat> with all the things that you continue to struggle with. That keep popping back up in your life. With all your fears. You can be right with God. Not by working for it. But through faith in Jesus, you can receive the Spirit. You can be right with God. You can have a certain eternal inheritance. Not by effort, but by faith in Jesus. Not by adding your work to faith in Jesus, but simply through faith in Jesus. Now, some of us hear that and say, how can I be sure about that? How can, how can I be sure about that? You know, that's actually the same thing Abraham said. 
if you've got your Bible, look back with me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, and this is where God is, is making this promise to Abraham. Uh, 15, verse 7. And he said to him, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now that's kind of a, kind of a weird scene, not something we see every day. Um, what's going on here? In the Old Testament, when two people committed to a contract, when two people made a covenant, uh, they called it cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. Now, why do, they, why do they call it cutting a covenant? Because what they did is that they would take animals and they would cut them in half. And then they would lay them down kind of on either sides of, of a row. You put half of it here and half of it over here. And you'd lay them down like that. And then each party to the covenant would walk between the pieces of, of dead animals. And what, what they were saying was, if I don't live up to, to my part of the covenant, let that happen to me. If I don't do what I say I'm going to do, then let me be torn asunder. Let me be cut in half like these animals have been cut in half if I don't do what I've committed to do. Now, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, look what happens here, all right? We're getting ready to make a covenant, and what's Abraham do? He falls asleep. I don't know how you fall asleep here. Abraham falls asleep, and God, and that's what this, this is a theophany here, this representation of God, this smoking fire pot and flaming torch. It's a representation of God. God himself and nobody else walks between the dead animals that are laid out there. Now, you think about that, and then think about what happens with the giving of the law. At Mount Sinai, uh, when the law was given, Moses was there as an intermediary. Angels were there. They take the law from God. Moses presented to the people, and the people say, we'll do this. We're going to do everything that's, that's written in this book. When God made the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. And God said, I'll do this. I'll walk between the pieces. And 
when you don't do what you're supposed to do, when you, Abraham, fell miserably, when you don't keep the terms of the covenant, the curses that are meant to fall on you are going to fall on me instead. They're going to fall on my son instead. I'm going to be the covenant keeper. It's not up to you. It's up to me. Now, what's God doing? He's teaching, even the Old Testament, that right standing with him, that the inheritance, that the blessing of fellowship, of knowing God, that that only comes through faith in God and what God does and not through our works and what we do. It's through grace. Grace makes it depend on God. Works and effort makes it depend on you. Which one would you rather rely on? The grace of God or your work? And so what God is doing here is he's calling us to to look away from our efforts at self-improvement. To look away from our obedience. To look away from our disobedience. To quit looking at ourselves, period. And to trust him to do what we can't do for ourselves. To fulfill the terms of his covenant. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's all, that's all nice, and we've said that about 47 times in Galatians, haven't we? Uh, Justin, would you tell me then, what's the law for? Why is the law there? Now, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that, um, because the Galatians asked that as well. Now, look back, look back at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. I want to read this part again. All right, here we go. Why then the law? Paul, if the inheritance is by faith, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Don't worry about that part right now. Uh, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. What's the law for? What's the law for? Here's the thing. Justification by faith and not by my effort, not by effort, that's really hard for us to get. We hear it, but it's hard for us to get. Uh, We lower God's standard. Um, We we look at our own performance through rose-colored glasses. Uh, We grade ourselves leniently. We compare ourselves Uh, to the people around us because we like working hard, and that's what we do. Uh, We can make ourselves better. We can do this. And so we don't see our sin, and we don't see what our hearts are really like. And so what God does is he says, okay, let let me show you what you're really like. And so he gives us the law. He says, look, you want to find blessing by your obedience? 
This is what that looks like. If you want to depend on you, here's what you need to do. Uh, And oh, by the way, you're going to be cursed if you don't do this. You can have the blessing of fellowship with me, or you can have the cursing of being utterly cast out of my presence if you don't do what this law requires. See, what the law is for uh, is to show us that we can't do the law that we think we can do, uh, to show us that we can't save ourselves, that we can't do what we're supposed to do, that the standard's beyond us, that at the end of the day, we're like a guy with no arms and no legs and asthma who thinks he's going to climb Mount Everest. All right? It's, it's just not happening. All right? We're like somebody vomiting blood covered with sores who thinks they're going to let us into the neonatal unit at Spartanburg Regional. All right? nobody's, nobody's letting you in there. The law imprisons us. It shuts us up to our own sin. Um, it, it can't give us life. It can't help us. It can't resuscitate us. Uh, the law, Paul says, is like a schoolmaster. And, and the idea is not like a teacher, but there was a, a disciplinarian who accompanied uh, the teacher. And this is the person who walked around and, and slapped you upside the head with a ruler when you fell asleep. All right, this is the person that was kicking your tail to, to do your homework. This is the person that was riding you to get your work done, that beats you up, that's stern with you. And we had, we had a teacher one time in like fourth grade who would throw erasers at us in, in class uh, if we fell asleep. I don't think you could do that now. But, but this is the person who's always correcting you when you mess up, when you do wrong. The law is like that. The law is a disciplinarian. It's not a recipe for you to look at and use what you like to improve some parts of your life. But, hmm, I'll be better here by doing this. And I don't like that part so much, so I'm not going to worry about that. The law is meant to be a schoolmaster that beats you up and tears you down, kicks you when you're down. Now, <clears throat> is there any blessing in the law, keeping the law? Yeah, but we're not there yet. Uh, that's in chapter 5. Because what you've got to see more foundationally, the first thing the law has to do is to show you that you're not a law keeper. That you're not just a fixer-upper, but that you're profoundly broken in a way that that you can't do anything about. You know, when, when I read the, the, when I talked about the fifth commandment this morning, and, and any week we talk about one of the commandments. Um, I do want you to say, you know what, okay, that's, that's helpful. Here are some ways I can think about actually honoring my parents. Here's what it looks like. Or here are some ways I can think about uh, honoring my children. Here's, here's what that looks like for me to do. But on the other hand, if all you hear is that, or if you walk away from that going, hey, I can do that. I, I think I can handle that. Then if, if that's the thought going through your mind, or I'm doing a pretty good job of that, or I can get that under control, then there ought to be a tornado siren that starts wailing in your mind, warning you that, that you're getting this all wrong. Because... Uh, the other thing that ought to happen is that as you're looking at this, thinking about this commandment about honoring your parents, 
that ought to be beating you up a little bit. And you ought to be seeing there your inability. See, the law is not meant to show you your ability. The law is meant to show you your inability and make you ready to receive the one who is able, the one who did bear the curse for you. It's not meant to show you your ability. It's meant to show you your sin and to make you go running to Christ. Uh, Like somebody running from a tornado to the shelter, you're running to Jesus Christ because the law has shown you who you really are and what you're really like. You know, even, even as a believer, there's a sense in which the law at times still beats on us. But the good news is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to stay there and keep receiving that beating. Because the law isn't your home anymore. It's not the, the realm you're living in. Um, and, and so what you're called to do in those situations where the law has just strung you out and showed you your sin is you repent and you believe the good news that Jesus was cursed for you. Uh, as, as Jean LaRue likes to say, when a Christian sins, they don't fall out of grace. They fall into grace. Or as, as Martin Luther says, here one must say, law's been beating you up. Stop, law. You've caused enough terror and sorrow. Then let the law withdraw. For it was indeed added for the sake of disclosing and increasing transgressions, but only until the point when the offspring would come. Once he is present, let the law stop disclosing transgressions and terrifying. Let it surrender its realm to another, that is, to the blessed offspring, Christ. He has gracious lips, with which he does not accuse and terrify, but speaks better things in the law, namely grace, peace, forgiveness of sins, and victory over sin and death. When you fail as a believer... Do you run to the law, or do you run to the promise? Do you run to the law and say, I'll do better next time, or do you run to the promise? You know, if, if you find yourself running to the law for life, what that is, it's like a, a, a person who comes in just filthy from working outside, and you go to the mirror, and you're looking in the mirror, and you see all this dirt, And then you take the mirror off the wall and you try to clean yourself up with a mirror. It it doesn't work. It's not what it's there for. It's not there to clean you up. It's there to show you your need of cleansing and to point you to the one who can make you clean. Uh, Christianity isn't just a, a, a few rules that God has given uh, for you to keep to make you better. It gives you rules to show you you can't keep them and to show you how desperately you need a Savior. It points you to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, we wouldn't ignore the law, but that you would cause it to do its work in our life. Um, Father, I pray that it would show us our sin. 
but that in seeing our sin, it would also uh, lead us to the one who can deliver us from our sin, that it would lead us to Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.